Thank you for listening to audio from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church or our Sunday services, please visit gccugene.org. Judges is one of the most violent and bloody books in the Bible. It is not a moral manual or a story about role models, but rather a tragic narrative about Israel's moral corruption and God's continued commitment to saving his people. The tragedy here lies in the overwhelming corruption and depravity of our human condition. Despite being loved and sought after by the king of all kings, Israel's cycle of rebellion remains unbroken. Israel rebels, God allows them to be conquered and oppressed. Israel cries out and repents. God sends a judge to deliver them. There would be an era of peace, but eventually Israel would sin and the cycle would start over. This is the rhythm of judges. God has called his people to be a holy people. And instead of remaining faithful to the law and showing all the other nations who God is and what he is like, they become no different from those who dishonor God. They did what was right in their own eyes. As time goes on, these judges, or rulers of the people, become more and more corrupt. When we define what is good, we hit rock bottom. The book ends with a phrase that is repeated four times. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They have no king, nobody to unite them and bring them out of their cycle of corruption. They need to be rescued. They need a king who can rescue them from themselves. The book of Judges not only points to King David, but points to our ultimate king, the one who can rescue us fully, Jesus. Good morning, welcome. I've been out of the pulpit for a couple weeks, so it's almost kind of weird just stepping back in. But even one of the themes I've noticed this morning from, from being here is I've asked people how you're doing, and you're like, I'm here. And so th that would be me as well. And so I I'm here. It's been a stressful week, somewhat of a difficult week for a multitude of reasons. And even last week, when I showed up here, it was difficult. So I say this to say, maybe this is how some of you were showing up this morning. Is last, last Sunday, my wife and I got in a horrific argument before church. And then, I, and then you show up to church, try to put on your best smile. It's a, that's what we do. Some of you guys can't relate because you're perfect spouses. So just, you can tune out right now. But <clears throat> we showed up here, and was, last week was the first time I didn't take communion in a while because it, it, I just didn't even feel reconciled to my wife in my heart. And so maybe that's you, just a rough morning, a rough week, just at a rough spot. Maybe you're just here barely. You just need to be encouraged. So as I pray for you guys, will you guys also pray for me this morning as well? Um, because that's what we need. And here's the good news. As we're going to talk about this morning, God's love and acceptance of us is not based upon how we show up, or even if we show up to church on a Sunday morning. It's based upon everything his son has done, accomplished, and finished for us. Christianity is not this message of do good, try harder. It's a message of what's been done by Christ. So we can show up broken, falling apart, our lives barely hanging on, or as one mom said, I don't even think their kids had shoes on this morning. So you're here. You can celebrate that a little bit. We can smile and celebrate that. So with that, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we even praise you 
for the difficult moments and times and weeks in our lives. Because in those times, and even in the midst of our sin, we are exposed for what we are, broken. Living in a broken world, Father, we are sinful. And as much as we want to think so highly of ourselves, that every time we recognize that, all we're doing is recognizing we have the need for a Savior, your Son. Jesus, we express through our failures our need for your grace and abundant mercy. This morning, remind us the truths of who you are. God, in many ways, we don't need new information or more information. We need the information of your character and the work that you've done, supplied, and finished in your Son. Minister to us. Heal us this morning. For, for the moms in the room that are struggling, for the dads, for the spouses, for the relationships, the families, the singles, meet with us. Speak to us. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you speak. Thank you that you communicate to us, Father. Minister to our hearts this morning through the power of your spirit. Lift up Christ for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This morning we're going to continue our series in the book of Judges, if you guys would turn there with me. The series is titled, Trust Me, I Know I'm Right. As we've said throughout this series, it's spelt wrong for a purpose, and, and that purpose is this, is, is the people of Israel were essentially saying, trust me, I know what's best. Trust me, I know how to live life. Trust me, I know the best way to do things as oftentimes we as parents hear our kids say as well. And we see what happens whenever the people say, trust me, I know what's better. And we see the, uh, the direction that life goes. And we've seen throughout this book of Judges, this kind of cycle where the people cry out to God, they repent, and then God sends a judge, which is a military leader. Uh, we, we don't need to think a courtroom judge, but more of a military, military leader. And then at that moment, the people are rescued. And then they fall back in the same cycle. They turn over to the idols of the land. They repent. They cry out. God sends a military leader. And so today we are jumping into our newest judge, which is Samson. So we're going to be in Judges chapter 13. Judges chapter 13. I'm going to give us the, uh, the outline for the text today for my A-type friends in the room, just to give you guys an idea where we're headed. Judges chapter 13. The main point is going to be this, the grace of of seeing behind the curtain, okay? The grace of getting to see behind the curtain. And many of us need to know that, and that's what we're gonna see today, is that this story, this account is us getting, and the people of Israel, God's people, getting to see the work that God was doing without them even knowing it. And for us, we might be in a situation in life going, man, what is God doing? This story gives us confidence to peer and look behind the curtain to see what God is doing, even if they don't recognize it in their strife. We're going we're gonna to use the Cobra Kai motto for our breakdown today, okay? Original Karate Kid. If you guys aren't familiar with that, it's this. Strike first, strike hard, no mercy, okay? We're going we're gonna to spin it, though. It's going to be grace first, trust is hard, full of mercy, okay? So verses 1 through 7 are going to be grace first. Verses 8 through 20 are going to be trust is hard. Specifically, trusting in God is difficult. Verses 21 through the end of the chapter, 25 there, is going to be full of mercy. Got it? Grace first, trust is hard, full of mercy. Before we jump into this nativity account of Samson, let's do this. If you go back to chapter 12, starting in verse 8, I'm not going to unpack it, but we do see three judges. So there's 12 judges in the book of Judges. There's three here we don't know much about. 
Why does Gideon get three pages or three chapters and, and a guy like Samson get four? Is it because they're merit and they're really good? No, we've looked at their lives and see that they failed miserably. It's because ultimately, this is so important. It's ultimately because this, the Bible is theocentric, okay? And that means that the Bible is telling a story about God's works and God's actions. It's not human-centric, meaning that it's not primarily about humans. This is important, otherwise we'll treat our Bibles like yearbooks. Every time we'll open it up, we'll want to know what God has to say for us, like when we read our yearbooks and we read what so-and-so had to say about us. The other thing we'll do is we'll treat our Bible like manuals for a step-by-step process. Now, it's full of rich wisdom, but that's not what it is. It's, it's actually Christocentric, meaning the Bible is theocentric, God's works and actions, but it's also Christocentric in the fact that the Bible is actually telling of the person and the work of God's Son, Jesus Christ, throughout. And so we're not told why these three judges only get a couple sentences, but we are told this, that one of them, the first one, Ibzan, he traded out his kids and his family in marriage. So I don't think the author's painting them in a good light. I think that he was trying to gain some wealth here to do that. We know the next one, we don't know much about him at all. Maybe the legacy left behind is more of an apathetic one where he didn't do much. And the last one we see, which is Abdon, was just a wealthy person. So maybe what these guys left behind was not a love to judge Israel and ultimately out of a love for their God, but a love for their wealth, a love for what they could gain, or just a love to live a lazy, apathetic life. And then we jump into this nativity account starting in chapter 13 of this guy named Samson. Now, this account is about his birth story. And this is the only judge we have this nativity account about. So I'm going to read chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, so we can get kind of an idea of what's going on here. In this section, remember, grace first is what we're going to be focusing on. And the people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean, for behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, a man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask where he was from, and he did not tell me his name, but he said to me, behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite of God from the womb to the day of his death. Grace first. In our culture, it's really hard to understand grace and grace first. It's because in our culture, we are constantly told, put in your work, do hard work, and you will get your reward. And so grace is a foreign concept to us. Grace is this one-way love. It is something undeserved. Tell a story of a man named Tim O'Neill who worked for a company for almost 15 years and then his son was diagnosed with cancer. At this point, he started embezzling from the company because the medical bills were adding up. One day, the owner of the company came in and and told him, 
Tim, I have a gift for you. And he had a massive check that he had written out to cover all the costs of the medical bills and then some. Tim broke down in tears, confessed and told his boss everything that he had been embezzling, only for his boss to say, I know. I've known it the entire time. And yet I wrote you this check anyways. The one thing that Tim didn't realize is how kind, compassionate, gracious, and loving his boss was. Mercy would have been his boss not firing. Grace was his boss giving him something that he did not deserve and that he could not earn. That is, that is like foreign and out of this world to us and for us to even grasp. In fact, I don't know if you knew this or not, but when, uh, whenever uh, boxes of cake were invented, you didn't have to add any ingredients to them. And then what, what happened is people were adding milk and adding eggs, though those ingredients were included. And the reason uh, what was happening to the cakes is the cakes were actually starting to fall apart because they didn't need eggs and they didn't need the milk. And so people started to push back and they're like, well, we want to feel like we're doing something. Like, like we're contributing something to these cakes. So they went back and a lot of the cakes you make now, you add milk and you add eggs. Why? Because now you get to add something to your box of cakes. It's a true story. At least Wikipedia said it was, so. <laughs> so that's a, that is another idea of this concept of grace of someone doing the work for us is really difficult. But then giving us a lavish gift to add to that is something that's so hard for us to do. But look at this. Look at verses one and two. This is the first time in the book of Judges that we don't see Israel repenting. And the people of Israel did again what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. Then there was a certain, so then we roll into this whole story of what God's doing. God is not always acting in some ad hoc reactionary state to provide a savior. He's planning it all out. They're not repenting. They're not turning to the Lord. In fact, they're so in, entrenched in their oppression and slavery to the Philistines, they're not even crying out anymore to God. They're just okay to live as slaves. They're okay to live in their sin. They're okay with this. You have to understand this. The message of the Bible is not look at Israel and look how they repent. Look at their contrition. Look at the way they're turning to the Lord. Look at Israel from Genesis to Malachi, look at the way they're growing, getting better. The only thing we can say is, wow, God is gracious. Wow, he is abounding in steadfast love and mercy. Because we don't see a people that are just constantly growing or getting better. We don't even see a people that are repenting. We see God acting out of his own will, providing a gift and a savior, not one that they are even crying out and asking for. We have to see that it is grace first, because if we don't understand that it is grace first, then we understand or we will misunderstand the, uh, of what the Bible is primarily about, especially the gospel. That it is God working out everything to provide a plan of salvation and redemption for us. One of the things that's been difficult for me is art. And I don't know if you guys can relate with this. But if you read here, it says, the people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. In other words, God has an objective standard of truth, of what is good and what is evil. One of the massive problems of our world and society right now is society is trying to deem and determine what is good, what is evil, what is right, and what is wrong. And then it just becomes really fuzzy. 
We have some pictures of some artwork up here. I am one who does not understand art. So it's hard for me to appreciate it, especially abstract art. <laughs> if you look at what an abstract means, it's like this, it means whatever you want it to mean, okay? This is abstract. And, and what, what blows my mind is when you walk up to these pieces and it says $1,700. And I'm like, wow. It looks like someone gave my kids paintbrushes. And I, I'm sorry if that offends you. This is just, but it looks like stuff is uh, just kind of slung. This looks like my kids drew bullseyes. And then the last one looks very similar to the first one. And then my friend got into art, abstract art. And I was like, what is it? He's like, it's kind of what you want it to be. I'm like, what does that mean? And it's, it's really difficult for me to even get my mind wrapped around that. In fact, our old church used to have an interpretive dance team. I'm, I'm, I'm just hanging. I'm, I'm working through this. They had, an, they had an interpretive. I want to be clear. My, my, my wife has always said that I like made fun of it. So just want to clear that up. I absolutely have. So made fun of the interpretive dance team because I don't understand it. But one time the interpretive dance team was doing an interpretive dance and the guy sitting next to me, I looked over at him and at, when the dance was over, I was like this. And then he was bawling. And I'm like, what? He goes, that was beautiful. I'm like, what was? <laughs> like, I don't know what just happened. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know what's being conveyed. I say all this to say, in a lot of ways, this is what happens when society starts to determine what's right and wrong is it can just be kind of gray. It can be like abstract art. It is what it is. You just kind of make it out to be whatever it is. And, and this is what it lends to. Do what's right in your own eyes. What do your emotions feel like? Just let your emotions determine it. What, what do your emotions tell you that piece of art looks like? Just go with that. What do your emotions tell you this dance is? Just kind of go with that. And so we have these responses, but we need to know this that God determines and has determined a standard of right and wrong, of good and evil, and that's the standard that we need to live by. I'm saying that now to say this, that we're gonna go somewhere today that's gonna make a lot of people uncomfortable, okay? Just like when I invited new friends and the interpretive dance team walked out, I instantly died inside. But our aim and goal is to be faithful to the word of God, which is why we preach through books. Because what we also have to see is this, is that there's grace first, <clears throat> and then there's more grace. Because he says this in verse three, when the angel of the Lord appears, he says, behold, you are barren and have borne no children. Man, does that seem maybe insensitive to people who are struggling to have children? She was barren, which in that day and time brought a lot of shame to someone. And the angel of the Lord shows up and says, behold, you are barren and have born no children. But you shall conceive and bear a son. If we don't read or understand this appropriately, appropriately, then it sounds really bad. But it would, it would be like Jesus showing up to a leopard and saying, behold, you have leprosy. The leper's appropriate response would be this, exactly, what are you doing here with me? If we read and understand this context and this culture correctly, then what we understand is this woman would be saying, exactly, I'm a disgrace, I don't even have a name, I'm just known as Manoah's wife. 
I'm an outcast, a shame. In fact, women in our society and in our culture think I'm outcast and I'm being punished by God because I've done something wrong. But the angel of, of, of the Lord, which we find out later, is the pre-incarnate Christ. Who does he have a heart for? Who does he show up to? Not just in the Old Testament, when he comes in the New Testament, he has a heart for the leopard. He has a heart for the barren. He has a heart for the broken, rejected outcast in society. She can provide nothing. She's barren. She doesn't even have a name in the text. And that's who Christ, pre-incarnate, desires to show up to. Behold, you are barren and have born children. She would be like, yeah, why are you here with me? And he goes on to say, you're going to conceive and bear a son. And then he goes on to say that he's going to be a Nazarite. Which, if you look at the Nazarite vows, this is someone who was set apart for God's work. They wouldn't shave their heads. They wouldn't touch dead bodies and they wouldn't drink. Notice the text says this, and this is what's not going to be popular. You're to do that from the womb. Last week, we saw a very difficult passage that Brad Leibolt preached through on Jephthah, and we looked at human sacrifice. Brad and I talked and said it's not a good, I wouldn't write the check where you're going to cover life in the womb. Let me address this week, because this text does say this, it says it twice in seven verses, that God cares about the decisions you make while the baby is in the womb, not just after the baby is out of the womb. In fact, I want this to start now, not once the baby has come out. It's unpopular in our culture to talk about the Bible being for the life in the womb because our culture has oftentimes said that diminishes women's rights. But I think if we push into that, and, and, and just so you know this, hear me out. We don't go on soapboxes about this stuff. Our job is to preach to the word. If, if you're here for the first time, our job is always to highlight Christ in the gospel. It's not to convert someone from pro-choice to pro-life, from egalitarian to complementarianism. Our job is to highlight Christ. Also know that the, the stereotypes, middle-aged white man. But I need you to know this. I am pro-woman, the father of two little girls, and my bride, who I love more than anyone else in this world other than Jesus. But I don't think the view that we've adopted highlights women. In fact, I think what it does is it allows men to be sexually irresponsible and objectify women. I'm not far removed from this. In fact, someone very, who I'm very close to, and I'll keep their name anonymous because their involvement with GCC has had multiple abortions. God cares about life in the womb because the life in the womb bears his image. As Psalm 139 says, you've woven me intricately. The reason why God cares about life in the womb because it bears his image. And so when we harm that child, we are harming the image of God. In fact, the text makes this clear. If we read Exodus, and, and, and I'll read it for you, you can go and study it later, but Exodus 21 22, <clears throat> when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hits her shall surely be fine, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judge determines. 
But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Why would capital punishment be something that God allows for man? Because God's commission to mankind was to be fruitful and multiply. And murdering goes against that. And so what we see here is God actually says the same thing for the child that's in the womb. He would say the same thing. Capital punishment is what should happen there. Because again, God cares about the life in the womb. Nowhere else in society do we make these same arguments that because the child is developing or dependent upon its mother that it doesn't have the same value. In fact, everyone would say that after the child is born, every child is dependent upon its mother or father for several years of its life. Children continue to develop. They learn to crawl. They learn to walk. They go through puberty. Their growth plates are developing. Teenagers are continuing to develop. And though at times parents might want to kill their teenagers, we would say that a child that is in the stage of development is not determining factor for killing them. Neither is their degree of dependence on someone. And so all this to say, when we looked at human sacrifice last week and, and, and when God addresses for her from a Noah's wife what to do with the child in the womb, we say the child in the womb has value because God values the life in the womb because it bears his image. But I would also say this, that if you're here today and that's become a reality for you, where you've had an abortion or done something that, please, 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 please hear me. God is not done with you. God has not written you off. God is not abandoning you. It is not the one unforgivable sin. In fact, God sent his son, not just for you, but for everyone to bear the punishment for all of our sins. So you could know without a shadow of a doubt that God will never punish you for your sins. So please know that. Please hear that. Please come and talk to me, any of the women in our church. If you know someone considering this, also please come talk to us. Like, we want to help. We want to get involved. I believe that's the church's job to get involved and to help out with this. We also believe that we can't ignore what the text makes clear. We can't ignore what God is saying to do even from the womb. <clears throat> I'll read what was written to me by one of the women in our church. <clears throat> I killed two of my babies. I know I took their future. I'll never know the pain, the suffering they felt, or what happened to their bodies, how they were used or how they were discarded. When I would dwell on that, I had, uh, what I had done, I was tormented with guilt and sadness. I spent years believing God would punish me by taking one of my kids. When my heart became awakened to the gospel, it wasn't instantaneous. But as it grew, I understood what the gospel meant for me, that God wasn't out to get me, but instead he was out to pour out his lavish love and grace and forgiveness on me because his son took all the penalty for all my sin. I want that to be clear because sometimes it can be heard that this guy's out to get me or this guy's just disagreeing with my life or this guy's trying to convert me to his view. I, I want to be faithful to what God's word says, but I also want you to know that man, that the gospel is big enough to cover any sin that we can commit. And, and so that is not outside of the reach. So please hear me in saying that as, as, as we move on to this next section. Trust is hard. Trust is hard. Verse 8, 
Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah rose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, Now, when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life and what is his mission? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink or eat anything unclean. All that I've commanded her, let her observe. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, if you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? So Manoah took the young goat with a grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. But trust is hard. Grace first. It's got to be grace first. And then we're going to have to say that trusting is hard and trusting God is really hard. And here's the reason why. We love control. We love control. In fact, what's happening here in this story is Manoah wants to talk to the guy. And so he's like, hey, will you please come back? In fact, Noah, or Manoah is, is in a lot of ways seen as a bit of a blockhead in this text. But his response is great. What does he do? He prays. He prays to God and says, please send him again. That's a great response. Oftentimes when things happen in life, we respond in many ways, but not through trust in God and going to him in prayer. The infinite creator of the entire universe who has full control, full power, and is good, we have access to at any time. And he hears. Theologically, I think that's the thing that we forget. We treat prayer sometimes like taking out the trash. Just a mundane chore. But if we actually thought through, uh, through taking out the trash, theologically, every time we take out the trash, we would see God's provision for our life. Here's all this waste and all this stuff that God has provided. I'm not saying you're going to do it with the light now, but at least when you take it out, you're getting to see, wow, God's provided a lot for our family. In the same way, we need to think theologically about prayer and understand this, that every time we open up our mouth to God, he hears and he listens and he loves to hear from his children. And so he responds, he listens. The first thing that some of you just need to be reminded of and trust in this morning and trust is hard is that God hears your prayers. Maybe you're someone who is barren. Maybe you're someone who struggled to have a child. Maybe you're in that and every time a child is born or you hear of a pregnant woman, you're trying to celebrate, but there's pain connected to that. Maybe you've been praying for things to change in your life for a while, and you feel like maybe God's not listening. I promise you, according to God's word, who does not lie, as Paul says in Titus, he hears, and he listens, and he's good. What we have next is the angel responding, because 
Manoah's like, hey, are you the guy? And the angel responds with, I am. Anytime you see I am show up in the text and in the word of God, we understand that's typically a theophany. That is God's presence. And so he starts asking these kind of questions. He's like, what's the manner? What's the mission that we're supposed to raise Samson in? Do you know why people ask this? Because here's what he's wanting. Give us a playbook. Give us, give us the rules. Give us a step-by-step process how to raise a child. Just lay it out for us. And I love the response. All that I told your wife, just do that. It's like, he doesn't give it all to him. In fact, Brad announced last week that when we just got back from a fly fishing trip in Montana, I don't fly fish. And so the, the, the guide, nice 19-year-old kid, I, I hooked him because on my first cast, he told me I, I uh, set the hook like a sissy. And so I was like, okay. And so I set the hook next time, but I set it in his neck, okay? I think we have a picture of that. So for, do we have a picture of that? Cool. Yeah. The biggest catch. And so I think there's another one that shows it just lodged in his neck. There you go. That stayed in there for two hours until we could get back to the lodge, okay? So when we got back to the lodge, young Caden is, is and, and the other guys will tell you this, he's very A-type, he likes details, he likes to know what's going on, okay? Why? Because if we can have the details, if we can know how everything's going to work out, then we, guess what we put our trust? We put our trust in the plans and the details of how things are going to work out, right? So we get back, and he wants me to line it all out for him. Here's his big request. I, I want, I'm on a countdown. And he says this multiple times, give me a countdown, Okay? And then, he, and then he's like are, uh, like, are you a doctor? And so I said, in the same way that Dr. Dre is. So that's where that came from. I'm not a doctor. So I put the little lanyard on the hook, and he was like, that's, and he bites down on his wallet. That's all he wants, and I just rip it out, okay? I didn't give him his countdown. Was that nice of me? Probably not, but I felt like the countdown was going to create a lot of anxiety. And the first time I tried to move it, he didn't want to move, okay? Here's what I'm saying. So many times in life, we want to have control. We want to control how our families perceive us. We want to control our family's approval of us through who we marry, through jobs that we have, through so many things. We want things laid out for us all along the way. And oftentimes we see this in Abraham's life and all throughout the Bible. God calls us to trust his character. Oftentimes, Our struggles don't come from not having enough information. It's from actually believing the information that's made available to us and who God is and what he's done and provided through the life, death, and resurrection of his son. It's why Paul spends 18 months in Corinth and says this, I profess to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. What he was saying is that I actually believe that the cross and the gospel speaks to every area of life. And oftentimes as parents, we want to know the rules and hope that rules will somehow be able to transform our kids' lives. We want well-behaved kids oftentimes more than well-believed kids. Because that makes us feel good. No one wants to be the parent in Safeway whose kid's flopping around like a fish on the floor, Right? And when we're, we're in that moment when our kid's not doing that, we're like, yeah, it's because we got control. Ha- expecting rules to be able to transform my kid's life is like my daughter who just went to the eye doctor. It's like looking at an eye chart and expecting the eye, eye chart to be able to fix her eye problems. It's incapable. It, it, it can say, 
you have a vision problem, but it cannot provide any sort of solution to fix her eyes. In the same way, the law of God is good, but it cannot provide any ability to transform her heart and make it new. And so what they're simply wanting is just lay it out for us. Give us all the rules. And God's like, here's what you need. You need to know my character. What I've given you is good enough. That's hard for us. And then he goes on to say this. He's like, well, what's your name? Like, give me something, you know? (laughs) And then he goes, it's too wonderful. (laughs) You know, how frustrated would you be? (laughs) It's like, it's just too wonderful. But this is what the psalmist says in 139. It's, do you know what we call this? We call it finite frustration. It's when we can't get our minds wrapped around an infinite God, we get frustrated. It's, It's okay if we do it with abstract art. It's okay if we do it with an interpretive dance. When we're talking about a finite God, we think that we have to understand and grasp everything there is about God. Here's the the truth. We won't be able to get our minds wrapped around God for all of eternity because he's eternal. We're gonna constantly be growing in a knowledge and exploration of who God is and how wonderful he is. So much so, the psalmist is like frustrated in Psalm 139. He's like, man, like so wonderful are you, like vast beyond measure, your thoughts I can't even comprehend. He's talking about this and he's just blown away. What's, what's he doing? He's revealing the same thing to you. At some point you're gonna have to just embrace mystery because you're not gonna get your mind wrapped around me, Manoah. Trust is difficult. Trust is difficult because we want to grab a hold of things in life and gain control of them. Control is fickle. It slips through, it slips away. It's like grabbing vapor. You think you have something that you don't actually have. Let's keep reading. Verse 21. The angel of the Lord appeared appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, we shall surely die for we have seen God. Appropriate response. But his wife said to him, If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands. Notice at our hands. Or shown us all these things, or now announced to us such things as these. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir in him at Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshtel. Difficult words to say. What do we see? He has an appropriate response. He understands the magnitude of God's holiness. He understands that to be in the presence of such a holy and good and pure and righteous God that he should be struck dead. I don't know if you've ever gone into someone's house before that is so clean that you instantly like need to feel like you gotta take your shoes off and maybe you shouldn't even enter. Or if you've taken your kids into a glass store, like everything in you like wells up like we shouldn't be here, you know? In the same way, when someone enters and and recognizes the presence of a holy God like Isaiah, they go, woe is me. Like, I should be dead. And then something happens here. She says this. She's she's been discipling him, loving him, being gracious with him this whole account. And she's like, hey, Manoah, if we were going to die, surely God would have killed us and he wouldn't have accepted the offering from us. Especially from our hands. What she understands is that we're broken. We're outcasts, we're no one. And in fact, what we have to offer is like filthy rags to a holy God. We don't have a sacrifice worthy to bring to God. The fact that he accepted what we had, that was grace. That was amazing. 
And the reason why Manoah in the first place wanted to detain God, because in this culture, if you could give someone a meal, you were able to put them in your debt. God responds and he's like, no, 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 no. I don't need anything from you. And that's the problem with so many of us is we want to control God by putting him in our debt. Look, I did this. Look, I went to church. Look, I gave. Look, I read my Bible. Look, I prayed. Look, I did these things. I'm performing in this way. I'm putting you in my debt. I'm controlling you. Now you have to love me. And God's like, that's not how I operate. I operate out of grace, out of my goodness, out of decision, out of a choice. And there's no sacrifice that you could bring to me that is going to merit my acceptance and love and approval of you. Let me tell this story as, as we wrap up to portray what we call the gospel, the good news, is there was a father, a king who had a son, and he sent him out to battle. And in this battle, there was a young boy, no name, outcast, reject of society. And on the battlefield as the king was fighting, a chariot was coming for this boy that would, struck him in, that would have struck him and killed him. But the king lunged in front of the chariot providing himself as a sacrifice in dying. In his dying breath, he told this young boy, he said, take my clothes, take my garments, take my sword, take my horse, take all that I have and go to my father. It's yours. The young boy said that there's no way your father will believe me. And he wrote a note, signed, saying all that I have, I've made yours. And so the young boy rides back to the palace, to the king, in his garments, on his horse, with all of his riches, reads the letter and declares, all that my son has is now yours. That's the picture of the gospel. What we deserve is the wrath and punishment from God. Our king, Jesus Christ, goes to battle and fights for us. He declares through his life, in a sense, a handwritten letter signed with his blood that it is finished. And now he says, all that's mine, my life of purity, my life of righteousness, my garments, all of my riches, the fact that you get to be with me in eternity, and now you get to be called a son and a daughter, that's yours. In the same way, we spend our lives thinking what our hands can do and what our hands can bring and what our hands have offered. But we need to be more like Manoah's wife. And we're going, am I doing enough for God? Let me help you out. You're not. And you never will. We haven't. But the truth of the gospel is that Christ has done everything for God, and he's done it perfectly. And what God chooses to do is through faith in his son is see you in light of what his hands have brought. Every day, what you need to do is think less about what your hands can do and more about what his hands have done. Every day, what you need to be thinking is that I don't bring to God my life of purity. I bring to God the hands of Christ and his life of purity. I don't bring to God my life of good works and good efforts. I bring to God the hands and the life that's filled up of his good efforts. I don't bring to God my sacrifice. I bring to God the sacrifice of his son on my behalf on the cross. We have to think more, not in light of what our hands have done, but in what Christ's hands have done. Let's pray. Father, I know in a lot of ways, as, as we talk about some of these subjects and some of these things, it's just difficult. 
And I feel that feels heavy. But what is not is your grace. It's free. It's a lavish gift, and we can't make sense of it. But I pray we would celebrate and sing for what you've done. Let our lives be lived now as a response. God, let us know that we're not earning your love, earning your favor, earning your acceptance, but instead let us respond with worship. In Jesus' name, amen.